My wife Laura and I moved to Utah a little more than five years ago to plant the Mission Church. Came from Chicago and felt a strong desire to move out here and help be a part of the growing movement to reach this entire lost region for Christ. In the process of moving on out here, we got to know a lot about the state of Utah by statistics, not by person, not by face, but by numbers. And we learned that Utah is one of the most unreached places in the Western Hemisphere. It's the least Christian state in the U.S., and yet it is the most religious. In the process of moving here, we spent a lot of time studying the main and dominant religion out here, the LDS Church. And we developed, I believe by God's giving, it's the heart for the many Mormon people out here and couldn't wait to join in the many Christians who were already in Utah to see many lost LDS people come to faith in Jesus. Shortly after moving here and once we started the church in our living room with just a couple of families, I got a chance to, to meet uh, Aaron Schaffwolf. He's one of the, the pastors here at the church and he's actively engaged in evangelism downtown. They still head down there weekly to share the gospel with people on the street. So I got to know the people on the street in that way and spend a lot of time talking to people about their faith and what they believe and why and it was really eye-opening. It was enlightening and it was also something that caused our hearts to just burst the people here. I remember on one particular occasion, I grabbed a recording unit and a microphone and I went out on the street and I just started asking one question to as many people who had stopped, dozens in a particular night. And the question that I asked is, if your faith is not true, if the LDS religion was not true, would you want to know about it? And if somebody was interested in answering the question, I'd press it slightly further. I said, if there was evidence to prove your religion wrong, the kind of evidence that would certainly convince even you, would you want to see it? Would you want to know? Of the dozens of people that I spoke with that night, at least half of them said, no, no, I wouldn't want to know. Follow-up question, of course, is pretty obvious. Why not? Why would you not want to know it if it was true? And the answer that almost everyone who had given the no answer, almost everyone who had said that, replied to the next question, why wouldn't you want to know? They said, because at least it's better than the alternative. There's at least some good here. And I'd rather be in with this if it was a lie than out. Some of you might know that that's not unique to Mormonism. That's something that lots of people carry around. In fact, I look back to the French philosopher back in the mid-1600s, Blaise Pascal. He, he came up with what we call uh, Pascal's Wager. Have you heard this, Pascal's Wager? It's the idea that everyone makes a bet with their life on whether or not God exists. And the argument is similar to, to the one that people made on the street. It's, even if there isn't a God, even if he doesn't exist, wouldn't it be better to devote, to devote your life to something good on the chance that it's true rather than to live as though it weren't true? Now, personally, I don't think this is a very good argument. And for a Christian, I don't think that it should be for any of us. Let me think that it is, though. Here's why I don't think it's a good argument. There's a several reasons, but one main one is that in the Bible, the Apostle Paul argues the exact opposite of that wager. I'm going to show you this place in 1 Corinthians 
15. We're going to be verses 12 through 19. I'm going to read this passage out loud as we look through it. I have it up on the the screen if you want to follow along. Paul argues this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So Paul's dealing with an audience of people, many of whom are trying to say, ah, there's no such thing as a resurrection. When we die, we just die. That's it. There's no bodily resurrection from the dead. He continues, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul here does not argue, even if all of it was a lie, it'd be a life well lived. His argument is the opposite. If it's really a lie, if it's really not true, if Jesus actually is still in the grave somewhere, if his bones are somewhere on this earth, we're the most to be pitied. The resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of the Christian faith. I've had people ask me on occasion, like, Rich, what, what evidence would you have to see to prove to you that Christianity was false? What would be the most damaging thing for the Christian faith? Without question, show me Jesus' body. If he did not raise Christian faith as a sham, I don't know if you had a chance to check the news this morning. I, I typically do even on Sunday mornings just to try to see what, what's, what happened in the world just last night. Anything significant? Some of you may have seen this morning more than 200 people were killed and more than 450 injured in multiple coordinated terror attacks on churches and hotels in Sri Lanka. It's a country a lot of people go to visit and celebrate Easter. It seems like it was a very specific, coordinated, pointed, targeted attack on those who go to these congregations. Now, I don't know the spiritual condition of the people who were killed in those horrendous attacks, but if Easter that we celebrate is a myth, then all those people, all those who would have been Christians, are most to be pitied. If Christ is not raised, our preaching is in vain. That means your faith is in vain. We who preach Christ have been misrepresenting God. Your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And Christians who have died have no hope. We are most to be pitied. There are many categories of doctrines that we talk about. Lots of things that Christians talk about and believe. In fact, there's a lot of things we even talk about and point to and acknowledge are secondary to us. Lots of different categories of doctrines in which there's variance on what Christians believe. Age of the earth. The order of the events that will come in the end times. 
how exactly God exercises sovereignty over free creatures. There's lots of variance over these kinds of things and questions, and you can find these in the Christian faith. But regarding the resurrection, there is no room for such variance. Don't believe me. Believe the Apostle Paul said in Romans 10, verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You can't be a Christian if you deny the resurrection. Now, why is this so crucial? What is it about Easter that makes the event of Jesus' resurrection, not, not just his death, not his death on Good Friday, what is it about Easter Sunday that is so crucial that if it didn't happen, the Christian faith would be defunct. Think about Good Friday. We celebrate Jesus' death. We point to the need for a sacrifice. This is what we spend our time on on Friday night, that the Old Testament, we have 39 books of the Old Testament that all correlate and point us to the truth that sacrifice, blood sacrifice is required because of our sin. And Jesus satisfies God's demand for a sacrifice. It's the only way that we can have peace with God because of his death. Now, think about this for a moment. It is conceivable that God could have ordained for Jesus to die for our sins and not to raise again. It's conceivable. We can imagine. We could imagine that God might have established things in such a way that he would say Jesus will die and not raise physically, but will go up to heaven to be with the Father, seated at the right hand. We could imagine a reality in which that could be the case. That's not what God determined. And that's why the prophets did not say he would stay dead. And that's why Jesus did not say that he would stay in the grave. I think there are many purposes for the resurrection. There's many reasons you could give. Why the resurrection? What was so significant about that? Why, why did God see fit to make it that his son would live a perfect life, teach flawless truth, die for our sins, and then also be raised? Why? Why was it so important that he would have it happen in such a way? I think there's many reasons, but this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to give you two reasons why our entire faith hinges on Easter Sunday. Why everything that we believe hinges here. And then I want to wrap up with a few truths that we draw out of those statements. Let's pray and do that. Father, we need your help this morning as we open the Bible. We, we look through scripture. We, we seek truth. We want to be served by this. Father, we're all celebrating this event as though it were true. And Lord, the truth of it is not something we can vary on, not something that we can have diversity and views and still be saved. We need to see this as true and submit to you. Help us to see the significance of this. Help us to see why it is that Easter is not just another one of those days, that the events that Easter points to is not just another one of those days, but it really is critical for us. Help us as we seek these things this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Is that me? If it is, I can switch. Don't want to distract everyone through the rest of the time. You just give me a wave. Reason number one why, why our entire faith hinges on Easter. Reason number one is because Jesus said he would rise. That's the first reason. 
Jesus prophesied that he was going to not only die, but he was going to raise again. This is what he said. John 2.19, Jesus says to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. John makes it clear a couple of verses later, he's talking about the temple of his body. That's what he's meaning. He's saying, destroy this temple, the physical temple of his body. You will raise it up. The Old Testament teaches us exactly how to deal with predictions of future events. Did you know this? In fact, the Old Testament points to many prophecies and tells us, as God's people, how to deal with such prophecies. Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 through 22. I'll read this out loud to you. This is how Israel should deal with prophecy. If you say in your heart, how may we know that the word that the Lord has not spoken? So they're asking, how do we know if someone says something, but it's not really from God? They say it's from God, but it's not really from him. How do we know? How can we be warned from that? Verse 22, when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. He's not speaking for God. He's a liar. We are commanded to test prophets. And Jesus prophesied. He proclaimed, foretold, predicted future events that were going to take place. If Jesus made a prediction that did not come to pass, then he should be rejected as a false prophet. There are lots of prophecies given in the Old Testament. It's not hard to find them. You can, just, you can almost flip and point your finger. You'll land somewhere near where a prophecy is being played out, fulfilled, or it's being proclaimed. Lots of prophecies like this. But the majority of the prophecies, both true ones and false prophecies that are there, the majority of those foretell natural events of the kind that even an outside observer, an outside observer might see and be able to foretell even if they hadn't heard from God. So, so, so follow where I'm going here. Isaiah prophesied that certain kings would be invaded under their rule and destroyed. Ezekiel prophesied that the Jews would rebuild the temple. They'd pick up stones and they'd put them over here. Elijah prophesied that there would be a drought. It wouldn't rain for a while. Others prophesied that certain kings would die in battle because of spears and arrows or maybe even by conspiracy. Still other prophets would say things like, Elijah and Elisha specifically would say things like, when this king or queen dies, they won't even be buried. Their body won't be buried. What's going to happen? Natural things. But Jesus' foretelling of the events surrounding his death and resurrection were peculiar even amongst other prophecies. I want you to look at one particular instance in which Jesus prophesies, foretells what's going to take place at the crucifixion event. Matthew 20, verses 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man, follow me here, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes first. They will condemn him to death, that's number two, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, that's three, to be mocked, four, flogged, that's five, crucified, six, and he will be raised, seven, on the third day. Jesus predicts seven very specific details concerning his own life 
things which would be entirely out of the control of a mere man. And his prediction ends with an extraordinary miracle. Jesus did not merely prophesy that he would be killed. Even a liar could make that prophecy and make it come true, right? A liar, a false teacher could say, I will be killed and then go get himself killed. But only a true one anointed by God could make a miraculous foretelling, a miraculous supernatural claim that then comes to pass. That's, the, that's a real test. Any of us could stand up and say, I predict the Chicago Bears will win the next Super Bowl. And it could happen. Probably not. But it could. But if a person were to predict a supernatural event that take place not only in their lifetime, but to them at the hands of other people, things that they couldn't control, that would be very significant. So the first reason that Jesus' resurrection was necessary is because if he did not raise, it would prove him untrustworthy. You and I shouldn't have any reason to believe anything that Jesus said. If he said also that he would be raised and he wasn't raised. But not only did Jesus make these claims about himself, others confirmed that they happened. This brings us to reason number two. Reason number two why our faith hinges on Easter Sunday. Because our Bible was written by those who claim to have seen him raised. I want you to consider for a moment. Our faith is utterly dependent upon eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. In other words, every believer today believes because of what somebody said. None of you were there. None of you saw him raised. None of you observed Jesus walking around, eating, spending time with people, talking, teaching. None of you did. None of of us have. It's been thousands of years. It's been 20 centuries. We believe in the eyewitness testimony of those who did see him raised. And the disciples themselves were profoundly aware of this. Look what they said in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 through 22. I'm going to show you this passage where after Judas had had died, they knew they needed to have a 12th person to replace what Judas was in charge of. And so they they commissioned one more person to be joined to their ranks to, to, to even out the 12 number that Jesus had called as his 12 disciples. And in so doing, they were wondering, like, what things should be true about this guy that might make him even a qualified candidate to be considered a disciple? And they said this about that candidate in chapter 1, verse 21 through 22. So one of the men who have have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, had been with Jesus during his earthly ministry and life, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us, what? A witness of the resurrection. They knew that they needed someone who'd be able to go out and tell the world. Witness to the world. Tell them that Jesus raised. In fact, earlier in this same chapter, in in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is another great commission passage where Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will come upon you in great power, that you will become witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. What are they witnessing? They're telling people they saw this man raised from the dead. Acts 10, verses 40 through 41. This is Peter now in verses 40 through 41. He says, in his speaking to Cornelius, this is a a Gentile who is a God-fearer, Roman centurion. Peter goes to his house because God tells him in a vision, go there. 
And this is what he preaches. He says, But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now, just so you know, the Bible doesn't tell us that it was only these 12. There are many more than that, at least 500 who had seen the risen Christ. It wasn't just them. But they were called by God, chosen by God as witnesses that they saw Jesus after he raised. He, he was with us. That one that they crucified, he's alive. Consequently, almost every gospel presentation in the New Testament includes testimony that Jesus raised from the dead. In fact, really, the only ones that don't include testimony of his raising are those one-liners. The believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. The, the real quick ones are the only ones you don't get the, the full long piece. But if anyone tells the story of Jesus, they necessarily say that he raised. That's the gospel, that he's not in the grave. He was a witness. Now, our faith draws upon eyewitness accounts. I know that for many of you, this feels very tentative. So I want to put this in perspective for a moment. Trusting eyewitness testimony is not unique to the Christian faith. In fact, all of you must trust the testimony of others in order to believe anything that you haven't personally known certainly to be true. Every single day that you use a credit card, every single day that you receive a paycheck from work, every single day that you deal with something that you don't have perfect understanding of, you must trust and depend on others who do. When you sign a contract at work, for a certain amount of pay, for a certain amount of labor. You have to trust that that person's going to actually fulfill that. And you have to trust that the judges who might reign over a situation, if it didn't work out, will judge rightly. And you have to make decisions based on trust and dependence on what others say. But even more so than that, you have not personally witnessed a single solitary historical event that took place before you were born. Not one. 100% of the events that took place before you observed them. You are dependent, utterly dependent, on what others say about it. More likely, you actually have had to read accounts of those who were there. Or maybe even most likely, you've had to hear accounts written by those who are compiling the accounts of eyewitnesses as you watch your Netflix documentary. You have to trust somebody because you weren't there. You have to trust that the footage is legit. You have to trust that the writing is reliable. Everybody has to do this. Every religion in the world relies upon eyewitness testimony of things that they haven't seen. You ever talk to an atheist? Makes maybe an intellectual type atheist makes real bold, sweeping claims about truths in the in, in the, the, the universal sphere of reality, the, the cosmos that are that are trying to pick apart to prove that there is no God, or trying to prove that creation didn't happen as it did, did happen. They didn't observe any of those things. They have no idea most of the time. They're trusting someone else's word that they read in a book. Trusting eyewitness testimony is not just something uniquely expected of Christians. That's just something to log. But just as we would expect, because trust is necessary for knowing for certain any historical event, Many people are very skeptical. And they have been since the beginning. I want you to consider one such Bible skeptic whose name was Thomas. 
Thomas was not just some outsider who happened to see and observe what was going on in this Jesus character. Like he was just a face in the crowd. He was one of the 12 disciples who walked and did ministry with Jesus, likely performed miracles that had been given authority by him to, to perform when Jesus sent the disciples out to cast out demons and heal the sick and all these things. He was part of that. He observed lots of things that Jesus had done. And then Jesus died on the cross on Good Friday and then rose again on Easter Sunday. But Thomas wasn't there to see Jesus. And so this Thomas that heard the words of Jesus, saw the teaching of Jesus, who even when crowds left Jesus because of difficult teaching, he stuck it out. Easter Sunday comes. Jesus appears to some of the women in his group. He appears to his disciples, but Thomas wasn't there. His disciples come to him and they say, they say Thomas, 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 we saw Jesus. He's alive. He's alive. He raised from the dead. He's not in the grave anymore. He's alive. And Thomas goes, what? No, 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 no. I don't believe that. I want, you to, I want you to see the verse in John 20. So the other disciples told him, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe it. This guy doesn't say that he just won't trust eyewitnesses. He won't trust his best friends. His closest confidants. The ones he'd been walking and living and doing ministry with and being persecuted alongside for years. He wouldn't trust them. Not just a, a book. Not just somebody distant from him. He wouldn't trust his best friends. I will never believe Not only that, he says he won't even believe if he sees Jesus. Look at that. His skepticism will not be satisfied if he sees him. He said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I'll never believe. So if he saw Jesus, if Jesus is on the other side of a river, it's me, I'm here, I still won't believe. He wanted to touch him. And his skepticism didn't stop there. Then he wanted to make certain that that wasn't some lookalike. No, 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 no. I still, I want to see. Show me the wounds. And he didn't just want to see him. I want to touch him. He would never believe unless he did that. Skepticism was very, very, very much alive in Jesus' day. There's this foolish idea that people have that, well, well, back in the ancient days, back 2,000 years ago, they were so dumb. They, those people just didn't know. They were, they were gullible. They didn't, they didn't understand truth. We can't hold them to the account. They're just superstitious, primitive, ancient peoples. They, they don't know any better. That's not true. They were skeptical. Close disciples were skeptical. People responded when they heard these claims exactly as they do today. What do you think people would say if you went out on the street today and said, Jesus, this man is, was dead and he raised from the dead and a person had never heard that story before. What do you think people would respond with? Probably a lot like what they said in Acts chapter 17. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, hmm. Now, notice what the others say. They don't go, oh, we believe. <laughs> they said, we want to hear more about this. We'll hear you again. There's something interesting here. I want to get to the bottom of this. 
But mocking, mocking was the result of people delivering the news that Jesus had raised exactly as it is today. Skepticism was just as alive then as it is now. Now, Some of you know that we don't only have eyewitness accounts. We also have evidence. Some of you know this. Some of you really are well-versed at mining through these things. And it is, it is amazing that we have a faith built on truth that we can test. It is true that you can test the external evidences of the claims of Easter events. You can never have been there, but you can test the claims. You can test the things in and around the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. You can ask yourself, did Jerusalem exist? Yes, it's right there. Do we have a tomb? Yeah, right there. Still have it. Did the Romans actually crucify people? Yeah, they did. Were other people outside of the biblical authors aware of this Jesus' existence? And were they aware that he died? And did they even tell us that people believe that he raised from the dead? Yes, to all of those things. Do we have his body? No. At the end of the day, a person must decide whether he or she will believe the eyewitnesses and the evidence or not. In fact, Jesus speaks a bit to this as he responds to Thomas the doubter. When he shows up after Thomas had said, I will never believe unless I get to do these things, Jesus, in his good, compassionate grace, says, do it. I'm here. Touch my hands. Touch my side. He accommodates the weak faith of Thomas. He cared for Thomas, and he said, fine, I'll, I'll show you. But you know what Jesus doesn't say? He doesn't say, wow, skepticism. Okay, okay, okay. How am I going to do this? I'll go visit every person. It's not what he says. Jesus says to Thomas in that same interaction, Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? You, would, you wouldn't believe until you came up, until you did what you said, until you, until you actually saw me now? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's us. That's that's people then who believed by hearing. And that's us who believe in the eyewitness accounts and the trail of evidence that was left for our good benefit. Is it not remarkable that the God-ordained means by which we can be saved is by belief? And not just belief in an event, but a supernatural one. It is natural for a man to die. It is supernatural for a man to raise. God designed that our faith would hang upon a belief in something outside of this world, something impossible, unless God acted. I said before, it's conceivable that God could have, prior to giving Old Testament prophecy, prior to the coming of Jesus, he could have planned for his son just to die and not to resurrect. I think that's a, there's a possible way we could imagine God could have operated in that way. But he didn't. Why did God set it up this way? In raising Jesus from the dead, God provided the ultimate authentication of his son. Jesus is rising as God's ultimate stamp of approval on this guy. Imagine so this, this. Look at it this way. Imagine there are two people, both saying they came from God. They're speaking on behalf of God in some way. And they tell you things about God. And they tell you things about us. And they tell you things about what is sin and how to be righteous and how to be saved. And they both disagree. 
and one raised from the dead. I'm going with that guy. Jesus knew this. The Jews themselves knew this. In fact, this is why they built a conspiracy to hide the fact that he was raised. Because they knew. They couldn't just be like, okay, whatever. Just tell people he raised. Not a big deal. No! They knew that if people knew that he raised, like he said he was going to raise, they would go, well, well, that means, you're darn right that means. That means everything that he said is true. That means that he really is who he said that he was. We are who he said we are. And the only way to be saved is the way he said to be saved. That's what that means. And the Jews knew this. And they freaked out. And they showed their true colors and their character. The Bible tells us that they literally tried to pay off the Roman soldiers. Gave them money. Tithing money from God's people to buy them off. That they would spread a lie. Just tell them that he was stolen. Because they knew what it meant. They knew what Jesus' resurrection meant. And they were so bent on the deception of the people... They concocted a lie and a story and spun it out for the world to hear. But since Jesus was raised, this means that everything he told us is true. It necessarily means that. I want you to consider the unique claims of Jesus. This is what we're going to do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to give you just five of these unique claims of Jesus and how critical it is that his resurrection was God's stamp of approval on this man who spoke these things. The things that were unique of Jesus, not anyone else. I'm just going to give you five of them today for your encouragement. That you would walk out of here on this Easter and go, he raised? That means, that means he really is the son of God, just like he said. Many times, Jesus interacted with people as God, and they didn't know how to deal with it. In fact, he got himself in trouble many times. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. They hated him for this. This is why they brought him to the cross. They hated Jesus for this. You, a mere man, make yourself equal with God? They knew it. They knew his claim. They went after him for this claim. But if he raised... He really is the Son of God. He really did deserve the worship that they gave him when they fell down. He really deserves the adoration that the the woman of ill repute gave to him when she, she wept over his feet and poured nard, this ointment on his feet. He really deserved that. He really deserved the praise that if he didn't receive from the mouths of people, stones would cry out. He deserved that. He actually is the Son of God. Paul knows this too. In Romans 1, 3 through 4, he says this in his introduction to this book. He says, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So what was it? It was the ultimate declaration of his son of God status. Resurrection from the dead. That's it. He really was. He really was the son of God. Imagine hearing this news for the first time. You know that this man has been saying these kinds of things. You know the claims against him. And then he's alive! They tried to kill him. He really is the Son of God. He's the only way to be saved. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What a bold claim! 
What, what an egocentric claim if this guy was a false teacher. If he would be proven to be dead, stay on the ground, not resurrected. What a claim for a man to make. Only through me can you be saved. Jesus said it. It was vindicated to be true at the cross. Oh, goodness, you know the world says opposite of this all over the place. In fact, the ex- several doctrines I think the world hates more than all the rest of what we say. One of the most abominable doctrines to the world today is that only through Jesus, that's the only way that you can have peace with God because of Jesus. Well, what about all the people who don't love Jesus? Then they don't have peace with God. It's simple. And I didn't say it. The resurrected man said it. And I believe him because he's alive. Jesus promised that he will build his church Matthew 16, 18, he says, I'll tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. And will it fail? What if, like, spiritual forces came against it? What if hell itself stood against Jesus' church being established and built? What then? I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, Jesus says. Jesus promised not only is he the Son of God, not only is he the only way to be saved, but that he will build his church. Do you look around the world today? Do you see terrible news like I just shared about this morning? People being blown up on the other side of the world. Do you you see that news? Did you hear sometimes of even Christian churches, those who proclaim the name of Jesus, who claim that they're Christian, and then totally turn upside down what he's taught? Do you see this stuff and get discouraged? I do. I get really discouraged sometimes. But the resurrected man, Jesus, said he will not fail in building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. You and I have hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. He will do what he said he was going to do. We have, we have great hope. Jesus said that the work of salvation is finished. John 19.30, when Jesus hung on the cross, in his final moments, would breathe out of his mouth. He said, it is finished. How do we know that's true? Because he rose again. That's how we know all that he said was true. The whole world is spinning in circles trying to solve the world's sin problem. They don't know how to deal with it. They're, they don't know what to do with it, but they're trying to solve it. Legislate. They're trying to, to try to influence one way or the other. The problem is the sinful heart of man. The only way for that to be finished, dealt with, is in Jesus. Jesus promised that he will return. He says many times, the Son of Man will return when you don't expect it. I'm coming back. I am coming back. And when I come, the whole world will see it. The whole world will know. Don't even trust the person that tells you, hey, hey, Jesus came, come with me, he's at my house. Don't even trust the person who says, hey, Jesus came. Come out in the wilderness. That's a liar. He's a false Christ. He's a false prophet. Don't follow that person because when I come back, everyone will know. The whole world will take note. Everything that Jesus promised will happen. And this is authenticated by his resurrection. Even the stuff that is yet to be completed, we know has been sealed to be true and will certainly happen. The Bible tells us that we need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If Christ was not raised, the terrorists should just leave us alone. 
because we would be in a far more pitiable state if this was all untrue. How about for you? Have you acknowledged this resurrection of Jesus? Have you believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? This is salvation. To believe not only certain religious doctrines, not to participate at one particular church, but to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's how you get saved. Our cry out to people is to point to Jesus, is to see Jesus as the center of history, the solution to all of your sin problems. When I say solution to, I don't mean that your life all of a sudden becomes this glorious, beautiful picture of whatever you thought the best would be before you were saved. I mean that all the words of Jesus come true and are substantiated, authenticated, verified, validated, because he raised. And all the mockers and all the scoffers will die and keep on dying. But Jesus raised. When we celebrate Easter, we praise God and celebrate in the fact that he didn't stay dead. He defeated death, proclaimed victory with his resurrection. And because he has raised, we too can be raised. There are so many truths about the resurrection. My hope and my heart this morning in sharing these things, and the reason I wanted to switch to this particular text for you today is because I wanted to encourage you in this. Paul pointed to this truth. The resurrection is the linchpin. This is where it comes down to. This is why oftentimes we want to know what kind of person we're dealing with when we're talking with somebody who claims to love and honor Jesus. That's one of the first questions we ask. Do you believe he actually raised from the dead? And if there's any waffling, we should be concerned. If you struggle with that, if you're wondering, how do I deal with this? I, I struggle with that, Rich. I don't know what to do with the fact that I, you're telling me a guy raised? How do we deal with that? Well, first, that's the point. To deal with that. To deal with the idea that a man actually raised from the dead. That something supernatural happened to authenticate what Jesus has done. To authenticate all that Jesus has taught. I know that many of you, Maybe Christ followers who love the Lord and think, think oh, praise God, amen to this. Yes, amen. Jesus is resurrected. He is raised. My prayer for you today is that perhaps if you need a restart, a refresh, a readdress, a refocus on this truth, that it would happen for you today. I want to go ahead and offer a prayer at this time. If you guys open your, close your eyes and bow your heads. I just want to pray. For first, the believers in our midst. Father, I thank you so much for the believers in this church, those who love you, those who celebrate, those who teach their kids about the resurrection, those who have embraced this truth and seen it as something glorious, wonderful, to be sought after, to celebrate in, to weep over, to sing about. I thank you for that, God. But I know that sometimes Christians waver and struggle and get distracted by the things of this world, the natural things, the things here. Father, could it be that perhaps the reason that you have set salvation up in such a way that we must have belief in supernatural events is that we would see that salvation is otherworldly. Lord, nothing we look at, see here, nothing, is, nothing around us can save us. Nothing we do can save us. None of our acts or works Father, we need to look above this earth for our solution. We need to look to you. We need to seek Christ who is seated at your right hand. 
Father, we thank you that these truths have been made clear by Jesus' resurrection. Lord, for those who are, are not believers, who are here with us today, those who don't know these things, haven't embraced these things, are struggling through these things, Lord, I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of their hearts. You would teach them to be seekers of truth. Lord, that they would be able to seek out the eyewitness accounts that you have given us in your scripture, in your Bible. Father, that when we come to questions about what is and isn't true, that we would compare those things as you have designed for our minds to work. Father, help these people who are struggling right now to, to see you. Father, help, help this church to grow and the churches in the Salt Lake County to grow. There will be more and more people next Easter celebrating a resurrected Christ. Father, I know that, that oftentimes we struggle with teachings in the Bible and how they comport with what other people say. And, and Lord, how do we deal with uh, our culture being so different than what Jesus taught? And how do we do, deal with those things, Lord? Father, help us to give Jesus in our hearts and in our minds a kind of authority that we would only give to a resurrected person and not just to a random philosopher, not just to an atheist apologist. Father, teach us to celebrate this truth of the resurrection, to honor you because of it, and to grow in light of what it offered for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.